Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed in the book of Matthew, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more, nothing less. And we do this all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our study of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession with Melanchthon's greeting, greetings to the reader of this confession. This is There's a lot of history to unpack. With our confessional writings, we believe that, that this is something we believe, teach, and confess, but also it happened in history. It's good for us to know what happened in that history. So we're going to continue to roll up our sleeves as we dig deeper into the background and Melanchthon's words to springboard us into the riches that we confess in the Apology. And I encourage you, our listeners, to connect this study with last week's study with Dr. John Maxfield um, from Canada as he looked at the editor's introduction to everything. So as we look at the whole, um, the whole buffet, the whole meal, the whole thing, we look at it and we ask the question, how does this clearly confess scripture? How does it clearly gives us, give us the gospel? And how do we give people a clear conscience, as I mentioned? So Roll up those sleeves and let's get going. So open up your book of Concord, open up your Bibles, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Apology, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. It is a joy this morning to join us in the Confession of Christ. We welcome Ryan, Dr. Ryan McPherson, academic, academic dean, and Luther, Cat, you know what, I'm going to start that part over. I apologize. Take a break. I'm all, I'm all jumbled with the McPherson reality here. I apologize. <laughs> here we go. All right. Count of three. One, two, three. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome Dr. Ryan McPherson, Academic Dean of Luther Classical College in Casper, Wyoming. Dr. McPherson, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you, President Finnerd. Dr. McPherson, this is our first time together here on Concord Matters, so tell us about yourself, your family, and this new school that maybe people haven't heard of, Luther Classical College in Wyoming. Sure. Well, my wife Marie and I have been married for 19 and a half years, and we're blessed with seven children. We've been Lutheran homeschool parents for many years, and we just both have a big passion for Christian education. For 20 years, I served as a professor at Bethany Lutheran College. And most recently, I have begun now to serve as academic dean at Luther Classical College. Luther Classical plans to open in August of 2025, so we've got uh, nearly two years to go still, but we already have 140 prospective students who have reached out to contact us. And in January, we will be releasing our academic catalog that will be available at lutherclassical.org. Luther Classical College will be educating Lutherans in the classical Lutheran tradition to prepare our students for godly vocations within those three estates of family, church, and society. And we intend to foster a sense of Christian culture by studying the best of our Western heritage and always looking at everything through the lens of Scripture. And uh, as we read the great books, always focusing on the Bible, the hymnal, and the catechism as the three foundational texts for a proper orientation to all learning. 
Now, did you mention when the school is going to be opening? Yes, August in 2025, August 2025. Okay, so <laughs> for the our young people right now, they would be, have to be in around, what, 10th grade um, in order to start in that class? Or they, they would be right? starting 11th grade right now, and we actually have some who are in 12th grade and have communicated that they intend to take a gap year after they graduate uh, mm. because they're so excited to start at Luther Classical. Well, um, a reminder to you, our listeners, to continue to pray for those all involved, especially for Dr. McPherson as he begins. I believe you're the first faculty to be, to be hired at this point. That is correct. So they hired me, and I have really two big jobs. One is to prepare the curriculum, and the other is to recruit the rest of the faculty. And I'm pleased to say I've already actually had nine people contact me before I had a chance to make any job uh, postings and express their interest and, and tell me about their own teaching background. And so it's, it's really been a, an exciting start to my career here at Luther Classical. Well, thanks be to God. Like I mentioned, I pray for all those involved, especially for Dr. McPherson, as they begin Luther Classical College and focusing everything on Christ, His Word, and the classics that our Lord has given to us. But as today we are looking at the Book of Concord, another part of that classics that we look at as Lutherans, looking to Christ and, and what he gives to us and his salvation. We are studying from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord. And we are in Philip Melanchthon, um, his greeting to the reader. And this is not to be confused with last week where we talked about the editor's introduction, but yet we are looking at the history, the background, the who, where, and what's when we look at a confession writing like we are today, the Apology. So we are on page 73 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and it reads, Phil Melanchthon presents his greeting to the reader. And it reads, After our prince's confession was read publicly, certain theologians and monks prepared a confutation. His imperial majesty had it read in the assembly of the princes. Then he demanded that the princes agree with it. Our princes heard that many articles were not approved which they could not abandon without offense to conscience. Therefore, they asked for a copy of the confutation so they could see what the adversaries condemned and refute their arguments. In such an important matter of religion and the instruction of consciences, they thought that the adversaries would share their writings without any hesitation. But our princes could only get a copy under the most dangerous conditions, which were impossible for them to accept. Now, Dr. McPherson, as we look at um, the background, it's important for us to understand this, this happened in time and history. So tell us a little bit about the history and also the word conscience is used continuously throughout our confessions and especially in this greeting. So uh, how do you want to start us off? Sure. Let me give just a little bit of history. And I think paragraph two there says our princess. So let me just start on, on that word. You know, this is a document of theology. Why are we talking about princes? Why is the emperor involved? I think it would just help to set the scene a minute. So a year earlier in 1530, Emperor Charles V had called an imperial diet at the city of Augsburg, and then the various regional and local rulers, uh, you know, these princes were invited to come. And the point was he wanted everyone to be on the same page because there had been other radical reformers who had risen up. There was a peasant revolt in, in 1525 that really uh, stirred up a lot of turmoil. And, and then there's this guy, Martin Luther, and some followers, including some of the local political leaders, are, are endorsing Luther, or at least protecting Luther. 
And so what in the world is going on? Because we have the Turks who are a menace from outside of this Holy Roman Empire, and then the Holy Roman Empire is falling apart from within with religious and, and social upheaval. And so what's going on? Let's have everyone come together for a meeting and make sure they're on the same page. And so that's part of the context. It's both political and theological, as well as you know personal when you have these hereditary dynasties and people want to control land and maintain power. And so all of that is, is kind of in the atmosphere here. And then these princes are told that they must submit to the teaching of the Roman theologians. And, and there is this document refuting the Lutheran Augsburg Confession that is read but never published. And, and they're told that they must submit to it and that they can't even receive a copy of it to read it. And so that's where uh, there was that phrase there. Our princes could only get a copy under the most dangerous conditions. In other words, if you, if you agree to all of it, well, then we'll give you a copy. But otherwise, we won't. So it, it wasn't offered as, let's study it. Let's compare the Augsburg Confession and the pontifical confutation side by side and open up the scriptures. It was more of a political power play that was happening here. So in paragraph two, there is this reference to conscience, without offense to conscience. And I, I want to talk about that for a little while, because sometimes Luther himself and the Lutheran Reformation in general get painted as kind of the beginning of modernism. And it, the story goes something like this. Once upon a time back in the Dark Ages, everyone had to follow the emperor and the pope, and no one could think for themselves. Uh, but then along came this, this brave uh, monk named Martin Luther, who taught us all to think for ourselves. And and following your conscience means thinking for yourself. It means being true to you. It means American individualism. So sometimes that's the way the story gets told, and that's a very sloppy and a very inaccurate and a very misleading way to tell the story. And so when we have this word conscience, I think it's important that we pause and think about what it really meant, without offense to conscience. And there are two points I want to make here. One is that, first of all, conscience is part of the natural revelation that we have. Uh, it's how we know the difference between right and wrong, that God has written that into our hearts as we read in Romans, and that our conscience can judge our thoughts and our actions to either accuse us or else excuse us again as we read in Romans. So the conscience and right reason are gifts from God that we all possess in common as part of our humanity by which we can know the basic difference between right and wrong. And so that's one aspect of conscience to keep in mind, and it's really supposed to be universal. It shouldn't be that my conscience and your conscience have different understandings of things. Rather, we share in common the same gift from God, his natural revelation. Sometimes I tell my students, it's sort of like your elbow, okay? I have an elbow and you have an elbow, and what does our elbow do? It lets us bend our arm, right? That's what elbows are for, so that we can bend our arms. Now, your elbow might be slightly different than mine. If we were to trade elbows, our arms might not feel quite right. But nonetheless, they function very much the same. And so there sometimes can be leeway when we maybe leave a matter up to private judgment of conscience, but we're not expecting a major game changer with that, are we? Because it's still the same basic revelation from God. But that alone is not enough. Uh, because as we'll read later in the in the apology here, there's this phrase, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses. So just because our conscience reveals to us 
whether our actions are right or wrong on the standard of God's universal law, that doesn't bring us comfort. In fact, it terrorizes us. So throughout the apology, you'll find the word conscience used together with the words such as terror, <laughs> that, that we're very unsettled, that our consciences are terrified. And then the other word you're going to find is consolation. And so the real question is, how does the conscience finally get consolation? How can we put, put at ease? How can we know that our sins are forgiven? That's really at the heart of this whole discussion. In Article 4, Paragraph 3 of the Apology, you'll find the phrase, robbing devout consciences of the consolation offered in Christ. So in Christ, we have consolation. We have forgiveness by grace alone, through faith alone, full and free salvation. But what's going on is that this pontifical confutation is robbing people's consciences of that gospel comfort that we have in Christ. It's steering us toward our own works and toward the uncertainty of whether our works are ever good enough. That lex semper accusa, the law always accuses, that's where you end up being stuck when you're deprived of the gospel. And so to come back to the introductory text, our princes heard that many articles were not approved, which they could not abandon without offense to conscience. In other words, many of the articles in the Augsburg Confession that focused very clearly on the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, those articles were being rejected by the pontifical computation. And then these Lutheran princes are asked to sign off on the pontifical computation and they cannot abandon the Augsburg Confession without offense to their conscience. Not merely a violation of their own personal preference or personal opinion, like we think the word conscience means today in America, but no, it would terrorize their conscience because they would be unsettled in their relationship to God unless they knew that in Christ their sins stand forgiven. It is interesting for me because you hear this word conscience used quite a bit, obviously from Pinocchio is one way that people speak of it. But also I've heard theologians and other individuals that would be on a more liberal bend talk about the bound conscience. You don't want to bound, you know, bind people's consciences, basically saying um, you have your thought, I have mine. And what what is the danger of, well, we have to make sure we're very clear in how we speak about this. But have you seen this in other ways in today's culture? Yeah, I've seen the example you're giving there, the idea of, of we don't want to bind someone's conscience. And of course, that's what God's law does. It does bind our conscience. So as long as you're doing it on the basis of God's law, not some man-made law, and that's where the controversy over adiaphora can come up, not to bind a conscience on something where it shouldn't be bound. But if indeed it's God's law, then it's entirely appropriate for a pastor to preach law forcibly to his congregation or for a Christian brother or sister to point out to someone, for a parent to use God's law in order to correct a child. And, and that will strike the conscience, and our conscience will be judging our actions and our thoughts, and we will have that sense of remorse and regret. And of course, the whole aim there is to lead to repentance in those cases. As we look at the last part of paragraph two, it mentions uh, the most dangerous conditions. Can you give me a feel? Can you give us a feel for how would this be dangerous for the princes to get a copy of the confutation? So no copy was permitted unless you first agree with what had been said. Agree not to debate it. Agree to simply sign it and say yes. And so it's it's spiritually dangerous 
to not be given the chance that the Bereans had when they listened to Paul and they compared him to Scripture. As we look at, uh, before we move on, anything else you want to highlight, background or history, or are we ready to go? Well, I'll just mention that um, a copy was made available by, by some of the Lutheran stenographers themselves. In other words, when it had been read orally, then uh, careful note-taking took place, and it was on that basis that Melanchthon was able to produce a response to the pontifical computation, and that response is called the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And that's where we are. This is good news. Okay, uh, let's continue on. We'll read paragraphs three and four. Negotiations for peace were begun. It was clear that our princes avoided no burden, however grievous, that could be borne without offense to conscience. But the adversaries stubbornly demanded that we approve certain clear abuses and errors. Since we could do this, since we could not do this, excuse me, his imperial majesty again demanded that our princes agree with the confutation. Our princes refused to do so. For in a matter of religion, how could our princes agree with a writing they had not seen, especially since they had heard some articles condemned? It was impossible for them, without grievous sin, to approve the adversaries' opinions. So there were clear abuses and errors in this confutation. Can you break that down for us? Sure, I'll give a couple of quotations so that you'll have some examples here. This is in the confutation article 4. It is entirely contrary to Scripture to deny that our works are meritorious. Let me just read that again. It is entirely contrary to Scripture to deny that our works are meritorious. So the Roman theologians are insisting that human works have the ability to merit God's favor, and that if you deny that human works can merit God's favor, you're going contrary to Scripture. And of course, they twisted Scripture, and one of the things that Melanchthon will do in, in a lot of detail uh, in the Apology is to rehearse some of their arguments that appear to, at first to be based on Scripture, and then he'll show uh, clearly that the right understanding of Scripture is that our works cannot merit God's favor, but rather we receive God's favor by grace alone. Another example is in Confutation Article 6, quote, Faith and good works are gifts of God, whereby through God's mercy eternal life is given. And you'll notice it doesn't really say that eternal life is given through faith, but it's faith and good works. And then in Article 15 of the Confutation, it is false that human ordinances instituted to propitiate God and make satisfactions for sins are opposed to the gospel. So here the question is whether the church, by human right, can make new ordinances and then claim that by following those ordinances, we receive propitiation, or that is to say we receive atonement, forgiveness from God, we can make satisfaction for our sins by fulfillment of these human ordinances. The Roman theologians were claiming that we can, and here they're saying that it's false to say that such a thing is opposed to the gospel. So they've really redefined what gospel means, such that gospel means both grace and works, including not merely works that obey God's eternal moral law, but also works that obey new inventions that the Roman church itself had instituted. What is very enlightening about those points 
is that when you read the apology, especially when you, when you look at our reader's edition, you will notice that justification was very short in the Augsburg Confession. But when you get to the, the apology, it is quite a bit longer. So I'm kind of flipping through here to see how long these pages are, actually, as you brought up this point, is that we're looking at just for two articles of the apology, we look at justification and you look at, um, excuse me, the love fulfilling the law. They, I mean, in our book, it, it ends up being around 60 pages, maybe even 70, if I can say it that way, about 70 pages. And so that is just a reminder when someone says, because at first you could say, well, maybe they didn't understand. They, they, so we're saying we're justified by faith. They heard that and they wrote a whole long thing about, no, 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 that's entirely contrary to scripture. We're no longer at a point where they said the wrong word and said, you're right, I'm wrong, let's move on. They were blatantly saying that you are not saved by faith, but you are saved by faith and good works or works are meritorious for the forgiveness of your sins, which, as you mentioned before, which ha would have a major conscience issue. Uh, do you have any thoughts or insights about uh, how long those were and, and just other thoughts you have about the apology that would kind of reveal some of those uh, reactions and teachings? Yeah, I will say, first of all, I think that's an excellent way to just to analyze any text really is to look at its structure, look at its outline. And if you look at pages 71 and 72 in the reader's edition, that's where you have a preview, a table of contents. And you'll notice there that the editors of the reader's edition have even broken down the articles concerning justification and love and fulfilling of the law into some subheadings. And I think that right there is a clue that that's going to be a place where there's a lot of detail that gets unpacked. Article one is on the Trinity, and there the two sides agree. And so it's very short. It's a quick paragraph, um, three persons and one God. We both agree. Move on. You know, you're going to find a number of sections like that that are just real quick and easy where there really isn't much of a dispute. But the heart of the matter really is justification. And then because the Roman theologians want to mix human works into their own definition of justification, there's this expanded section on good works and fulfilling of the law and, and talking about love and the relationship between faith and love. Because in the Roman confutation, you'll find this idea that faith, hope, and love, those three things all go together and they all are part of the, uh, the answer to the question of how do we achieve salvation? And so it's, it's faith showing itself through love and it's love fulfilling the law. And that's where human works start to get mixed in. So Melanchthon carefully goes through and unpacks that. He gives lots of examples from scripture. He analyzes them logically. You'll find him even refer at times to like the major premise, the minor premise, you know, using logical terminology to just go one small step at a time and try to show exactly um, wh where the errors are and where the twisting of scripture is taking place in the confutation so that he can then set the record straight and point people back to the pure and clear message of the gospel, that it is Christ and his righteousness, not our own righteousness that saves us. So as we look at um, the, the ins and outs, a question that comes to my mind uh, is, okay, we're hearing this and they're speaking about this in the Roman Catholic Church. And in our world, we really have to navigate a lot of languages used in society, clearly universalistic thoughts of, oh, everyone, everyone's God's basically the same God. 
But also there's been a reaction that I've experienced quite a bit where you'll say, well, nowadays, Roman Catholics and Lutherans are pretty much the same. And you'll see this from a from a well-meaning, maybe layperson or or well, I don't really know who else, but a well-meaning layperson will say this. Would you say, based on what you're seeing and based on history, that the Catholic Church would still believe in such things as was written in the computation in those days? So the official teaching of the Catholic Church, absolutely. You can you can draw a line from the confutation to the Council of Trent to the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, that's still used as basically the handbook uh, by priests today. And uh, just so our listeners understand, Luther's small catechism is very short. It can be memorized. That's what we have our confirmants do. We have them memorize the whole thing. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is a much longer document. It's, it's several hundred pages long. It's more of a thick reference work, but it's organized thematically, going through different doctrines and then giving the basis for those doctrines. And the citations go both to scripture and to tradition. And so the Roman church makes no secret about that, that their doctrine is based on scripture and tradition rather than scripture alone. And they also make no secret that their uh, central doctrine, you know, I I guess you might put it this way. For Lutherans, the, the, uh, what we sometimes call the formal principle is scripture alone and the material principle is justification in, uh, through Christ, um, by, by grace. And, and, and if you want to kind of line up a chart like that, then you'd say, well, instead of scripture alone, it's scripture and tradition. And instead of justification by, uh, by, by faith, it's justification by faith and works. But if you wanted to start the conversation over a little more centered from a Roman Catholic perspective, I think you could make the case that their central article is not justification by faith and works, but rather it's, it's obedience to the papacy. You know, it's consistency with church tradition. And so whatever, whatever church tradition says is going to, to answer the question. And that, that clearly is the tone throughout the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, you can look up any topic. Uh, recently, I was just looking up purgatory because my wife has been reading Dante, uh, who has a, a section on hell, a section on purgatory, and a section on, on heaven in his uh, Divine Comedy there. And we were thinking, well, well, where exactly do they get that from? And you can find they'll cite some church councils and so forth. And so you can see this idea that doctrine is always evolving or developing, as they'll say, and that it develops in line with the teaching of the papacy and church councils. And this is where Luther was different. Remember at Worms, he said, church councils can and do err, but we follow scripture. And uh, back to conscience, he said, he said, the conscience and right reason, that's in his phrasing. And then he said, here I stand. And so to take your stand on the basis of scripture alone, and to make sure that your reason conforms to scripture rather than vice versa, that your tradition is based on scripture and, and share scripture with the next generation as our liturgy and our hymns do, rather than vice versa, where your tradition then uh, takes the lead. Uh, and certainly to make sure that church authority, whatever the authority structure in your church, your synod, uh, is that, that it's not going to be that the guys at the top just get to say things and everyone else has to follow but rather it needs to be Christ as the head of the church and that it's through scripture that we learn what the words and promises of Christ are. I want to dig more into that after our break. We need to take our break. We are studying the history and the background of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. 
put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are continuing our introductory study of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession with Dr. Ryan McPherson of Luther Classical College in Casper, Wyoming. Now, Dr. McPherson, we there, there's so much here that when, it's good for us to always remember what we believe, teach, and confess as Lutherans, and not to look at everyone else and say how wrong they are, but when someone blatantly says, that you're wrong if you're saying that our our works are are not meritorious. It, 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 this is a serious serious issue in those days, which has political implications, has obviously theological implications, has implications as far as uh, um, your pastors and and your your laity and where they're all involved. And so that's something that's really been very helpful as you've uh, as you've gone through the study so far to remind us of how serious this really was, not only for the sake of a clear conscience for the people listening, but just think about all the implications it had for everyone involved. Like you said, there's war, there's uh, um, the, the papacy, there's the government, there's all this going on. And to me, this just makes it very amazing how clear and concise and committed they were in the midst of trial. Do you have any thoughts or in, insights on, on all of that going on at one time? Yeah, you know, one of the first things you just said is we want to be careful that we're not just like pointing fingers at others and saying, well, they're wrong and we're right or something like that. And I think it's important to note that Melanchthon himself was very moderate and was very patient. And even after the Augsburg Confession had been rejected by the Roman theologians, and then and then the emperor now approves of this confutation and is is trying to require the Lutherans to agree to it, you know, Melanchthon was asking himself the question, how much can we concede? How much, where can we meet them halfway? How much can we avoid rocking the boat? He, he actively asked that question, and, and there's discussion among the Lutherans to make sure that they're not picking a fight where they don't need to pick a fight. And so I think it's important to realize that part of the backstory is this attempt to be patient, this attempt to be moderate, but then finally this firm conclusion on the basis of Holy Scripture that on these points we cannot budge because God has spoken, God has spoken clearly, and God has spoken for the consolation of our consciences, for the redemption of our souls, and we dare not go against that and offend God, and we dare not endanger our neighbors who need the pure gospel in order that they can be saved. Well, let's continue with that in line. Um, pay, paragraph five on page 73, 73 of the reader's edition of the reader's edition of the Book of Concord. Number, paragraph five. They commanded me and some others to prepare an apology of the confession. This would be set forth for his imperial majesty, the reasons why we could not receive the computation. The adversary's objections would also be refuted. During the reading of the confutation, some of us had taken down the chief points of the topics and arguments. The princes offered this defense to his imperial majesty when they left Augsburg so that they would know that they were hindered from approving the computation by the greatest and most important reasons. 
but his imperial majesty did not receive the offered writing. Afterward, a decree was published in which the adversaries boast that they had refuted our confession from the scriptures. Reader, you now have our apology. From it you will understand not only what the adversaries said about our confession, for we have reported in good faith, but also that contrary to the clear scripture of the Holy Spirit, to the clear scripture of the Holy Spirit, they condemned several articles. This is how far they are from overthrowing our statement by means of the scriptures. Originally, we drew up the apology after consulting with others. Yet as it passed through the press, it may, I made some additions. This is why I give my name so that no one can complain that the book had been published anonymously. In these controversies, as far as I was able at all, it has always been my custom to keep the traditional form of doctrine. I did so so that at some time, unity could be reached more readily. I am not departing far from this custom now, even though I could justly lead people today even farther away from the opinions of the adversaries. Now, he breaks it down, how this is all came to be, and kind of some of his motivations, if you will. And so it talks about um, traditional form, quote unquote, in paragraph 11. And there's a lot of other things to unpack. Where do you want to start? Yeah, we can start right there. You know, again, what's the big picture view of the Reformation in terms of world history? And so many Western Civ textbooks kind of paint Luther as this guy who's trying to do this radically new thing and break away and so forth. And in fact, uh, Dr. Eck had painted Luther that way leading up to the, the Diet of Augsburg. He had published this uh, book called 404 Propositions, and he put things in Luther's mouth that Luther had never said and kind of painted Luther as this radical Anabaptist, like the folks leading the Peasant Revolt of 1525. And, and this idea of, you know, watch out for those Lutherans because they're, they're just crazy and they're going to stir up so much trouble. And so here Melanchthon is saying, much like what they said in the uh, the Augsburg Confession, rather, you know, the tone of that was was very much, listen, we're simply teaching what's in the scriptures, we're teaching what's the early fathers taught, we're teaching what you can find throughout church history, others have been teaching, we don't have anything new, uh, fast forward to the next generation when the formula of Concord is written, and to that is appended this catalog of testimonies, lots of quotations from the church fathers, again, to emphasize uh, scripture alone is the standard, not the church fathers. But nonetheless, we can illustrate our teaching in history by quoting from the fathers to show that we didn't make up some new and crazy doctrine, but rather we're simply following through the way Christians always have with the same verbal formulations of our doctrine, with, with similar liturgical practices and so on. And so this idea of keeping the traditional form of doctrine there may be more than one good way to phrase it, but let's stick with the old phrasing. Let's stick with the phrasing that the Church of Rome uses so long as we can without offense to Scripture, without offense to our conscience. Let's change as little as possible. Let's not be revolutionaries. Let's merely be reformers. That's that's really the, the tone that's being expressed here. And it's also interesting, I mean, Melanchthon's words, he said, he drew up the apology after consulting with others, yet as it passed through the press, I made some additions. That's why I give my name so that no one can complain about the book being published anonymously. Can you tell me more about that? I find it interesting that he almost steps back and, and adds this in. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, yeah. And he's got a funny personality. So Melanchthon's kind of a perfectionist. He, he's always editing his own writings. This is true of his Loki and some of his other writings, as, as well as what he here is writing, uh, you know, on behalf of the church, the, the apology of the Augsburg Confession. And so he's always tinkering with it and kind of wordsmithing it. In fact, he would even work on the Sabbath and, and Luther would kind of chide him and say, you know, you need to take a break. It is the Sabbath after all. But, but he just always has this itching to try to make it better. Uh, and sometimes that's good because a revised mm -hmm. draft can be better. Now, sometimes it's bad because he, he also has this sense. Remember I said he's trying to be moderate. He's trying to make concessions if he can. Sometimes he tries too hard for that. And, and we'll see uh, when you get to around 1540, 1542, you have some revisions of the Augsburg Confession that Melanchthon makes really trying to try to uh, placate um, the Reformed with their view of the Lord's Supper, where they deny the real presence and the, um, they deny that it's a means of grace. And, and so he, he comes up with some, if you will, some softer language that could be interpreted a Lutheran way or also a Zwinglian way. And so that's an example of Melanchthon um, revising too much and, and with the wrong, uh, the wrong motivation. And, and so, so there is definitely that danger, but I think on the plus side, he's meticulous. He's careful. He's um, perhaps perfectionist to a fault, you know, but he's always saying, can we make it even better? Let's go back and look at it again. And so that's part of what's been happening. And there's correspondence between him and Luther and others as they're reviewing drafts and wordsmithing it to try to think about uh, what's the clearest way to phrase it. Well, on that note, as you talk about, uh, he, he's a moderator trying to uh, unite people, which clearly we all have that same goal. 12 and 13 speak about this as well. Excuse me, 12 through 14, I will read. The adversaries are dealing with these issues in a way that shows they are seeking neither truth nor concord, but to drain our blood. I've written with greatest moderation possible. If any expression appears too severe, I must say that I'm arguing with the theologians and monks who wrote the computation, not with the emperor or the princes, whom I hold in due esteem. I recently saw the computation and noticed how cunningly and slanderously it is written, so that on some points it could deceive even the cautious. So like you mentioned, he is he tries to be the greatest moderation as possible. You can kind of almost sense a feeling of anxiety and frustration with anybody who is throwing accusations against him. Um, your thoughts on his words? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And also notice we've got multiple players here. So you have the papacy and, and the cardinals and the bishops and the theologians, you know, that side of the equation. But you also have Charles V and you have your local dukes and margraves and your electors and so forth in the political government. And it's a political meeting, meeting on the one hand, right, because it's an imperial diet at, at Augsburg. And so he's trying to say, look, we're not trying to cause a ruckus politically. We're not trying to disrespect your office as emperor. Rather, we want to work within the Romans 13 establishment that God has given us. But we, at the same time, have to be honest and forthright. And we have to say that there are certain doctrines being defended and asserted in this pontifical confutation that are flatly in opposition to Scripture and are endangering people's souls. And so we cannot agree with them. We must actually refute them. But we're trying to do so, again, uh, with the utmost of respect to the context of this imperial diet itself. 
I would say that one of the biggest, not frustrations, one of the biggest uh, problems we have as 21st century Americans is trying to understand the complexities of all that's going on. Because we don't have the same kind of government um, situation that surrounds us. Clearly not uh, an understanding of church and state like we do. Uh, how have you addressed that where when you're trying to just gather your mind around the Lutheran confessions and the history and so forth, how have you broken that down for your students as we read these words? Because it just comes across just different than what we would probably have something today. So how do you break that down for your students to help us better understand as 21st century Americans? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And so we, we could go to extremes uh, when you think of church-state relations. One is to amalgamate the two together, to have church and state be united. And that's sometimes what we see happening in the Middle Ages. That's sometimes what you see happening where the emperor tries to boss around the pope or the pope tries to boss around the emperor. And the other extreme is to have a very sharp separation, as Thomas Jefferson called it, a wall of separation, as if the two have nothing to do with each other. And that's an overcorrection of, of the first problem, really. So the way that Lutherans talk about church and states as two kingdoms, they talk about making distinctions, but not necessarily making a separation. And for example, a civil ruler has the responsibility of keeping peace and order in the secular realm, which is a secular goal but also really has a responsibility to protect those who preach the gospel. And so for Luther, who is teaching the pure gospel on the basis of God's word, to be branded as an outlaw is, is a problem. And that's a problem where theologians can address it with a prophetic voice to the culture in order to tell Caesar what Caesar's proper role is. That, that although church and state are distinct, they overlap in such a way that really should be mutually assisting each other, you might say. I mean, after all, they are God's hands, God's left hand and God right, God's right hand, these two kingdoms, as they're often called. And so um, rather than retreat from the civil realm and have Melanchthon say, well, we'll be, we'd be happy to go talk to the Pope and we'll just do it as, as theologians, he's working with the system that he has and he's trying to show Charles that, look, we're not revolutionaries like the peasants who revolted in 1525. We actually are here for the good of your earthly kingdom, even though our main work, of course, is for the spiritual kingdom. But at the same time, the leaders of the spiritual kingdom in Rome are going against the spiritual standards that we have in Scripture, and they have falsely branded us as being you know, anarchist, uh, to put it in one word. Well, let's continue on because that, that's very helpful as we uh, read and a good filter for us as we continue to look at the, the, the riches that are in the apology. So we continue on. We are on page, or, uh, paragraph 15 of page 74 of the apology. Yet I do not discuss all their sophistries, for it would be an endless task. Instead, I deal with the chief arguments so that all nations will have a clear testimony from us that we hold the gospel of Christ correctly and piously. Disagreement does not delight us. Neither are we indifferent to our danger. We readily understand the extent of when, when we see how inflamed our adversaries are by bitterness and hatred. 
yet we cannot abandon truth that is clear and necessary for the church. That is why we believe that troubles and dangers for Christ's glory and the church's good should be endured. We are confident that God approves our faithfulness to duty. We hope that the judgment of future generations about us will be more just. So he speaks about sophistries, chief arguments. Um, what is he speaking of? Yeah, so first of all, the, the term sophistry, I mean, in general, it just means a, a clever argument that's trying to trick someone. But there's also a technical sense for that same word, because Aristotle has this, this whole uh, treatise on sophistical reasoning, as he calls it. In other words, watch out for these fallacies to train people to, you know, what to watch out for. And on the flip side, Aristotle had a, a rather lengthy description of the proper form of a syllogism and how to formulate one. And this shaped the education at the University of Wittenberg, where Luther and Melanchthon and others are teaching their students how to make a proper disputation where you lay out uh, your propositions and you defend them with good reasoning. And you also acknowledge the competing proposition of your opponent. You look at it fairly, but then when you find a fallacy, you expose that fallacy in order to guide people toward, uh, toward what the truth is. And so you can find this, this tone throughout the apology. I'll just share a few uh, quotations for you. This first one is from Article 3, Paragraph 79. Thus, it will become easy to declare the minor premise if we know how the remission of sins occurs. So notice that word, minor premise. You know, that's a logical term. And in the context, the minor premise was this idea that we obtain forgiveness of sins by faith and not by love or not by our own work. So we can defend our minor premise that forgiveness is by faith alone uh, if, if we can, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's, that's sort of the structure. Or um, let's see, here's another one. This is from Article 19, Paragraph 89. Now you see, readers, that our adversaries have not wasted labor in learning logic, but have the art of inferring from Scripture whatever pleases them. So in other words, um, summarizing how fallacious uh, their reasoning had been example after example after example, very careless and, um, and sloppy reasoning. And so you find um, that kind of tone throughout, throughout this, which shouldn't surprise us, remembering that Melanchthon is the chief author and that he not only was, was teaching dialectic or logic, but he actually um, wrote some textbooks that got used at other schools, um, basically, if you will, recooking Aristotle for a new generation so that people could learn how to reason clearly. And for Lutherans, um, it's always important to remember, too, the way that reason is used properly. We use the phrase ministerial use of reason, that reason is a servant to the faith, ministerial meaning servant versus the magisterial abuse of reason. If you let uh, reason act like it's a magistrate or a master, uh, then, then that becomes a problem. As soon as you're misusing human reason to say, well, that doctrine doesn't make sense to me. I think it should be this way instead. Well, who cares what you think? The question is, what does scripture plainly teach? And so throughout the apology, you'll find reason and logic used quite a lot, but you'll also find very consistently that they begin with the plain words of Holy Scripture. What do those words say according to their grammar, according to their context? And then, now that we know what Scripture means, then we apply logic to show whether a particular doctrine, uh, such as what you find in the pontifical confutation, is true or false. And were there other doctrines that were very 
uh, a major issue in the confutation. Clearly, the good works that you spoke of uh, were ones that obviously would have gotten the, the Concordians very upset. But were there others that really, well, this makes sense in our minds, but it doesn't make sense according to Scripture? Any, any insights to that? Yeah, some of the other ones that got a lot of attention have to do with repentance and confession and satisfaction. You'll find that in uh, Article 12. And then also concerning like the marriage of the priests and the mass, um, Articles 18 and, or excuse me, 28 and 20, uh, 23. And excuse me, Roman numerals are hard to read. 23 <laughs> and 24. Um, so let's talk about repentance just briefly for for the the for Rome, the basic idea was you, well, there's a couple of problems. Okay. One is that they see re- faith coming first and repentance coming second. You know, in other words, you're, mm. you believe first and then you can be sorry for your sins second. Well, for Lutherans is no, you're sorry for your sins, i.e. the law worked on your heart and you know your need for your savior, but then you believe the gospel faith comes second. And so there's some discussion over which one needs to come first or second and kind of some cause-effect relationship and how that affects, again, the basic question of are we saved by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, Christ alone, or, or do our own works have some component there? And then likewise, when you get to confession and satisfaction, for Lutherans, it will be confession and absolution. We confess our sins, and then we hear from the lips of our pastor as if from Christ's own voice that our sins stand forgiven. And that's the end of it. But Rome was teaching confession, absolution, and then after that, satisfaction. That is to say, penance. Like, here's something you have to go do, which historically, I think, was introduced as this idea of, you know, if you're really sincere about your repentance, then of course you're going to want to live a better life in a major ways. And if you offended your brother, you're going to want to go back and apologize. You've been forgiven by Christ. Now go tell your brother you're sorry for what you did too. That's some good advice. The problem is once it gets mixed back in, like you're you're not really forgiven by Christ until you've done your part of doing better in the future and telling your brother you're sorry about the past. And unless you do that well enough and good enough and thoroughly enough, then how can you be confident that Christ has forgiven you? You, you, you see? And so we're back to the terrors of the conscience. Confession and absolution should always end simply with the conscience being consoled by this message of 110% grace rather than human works being mixed in. And so there's a lot of time spent um, unpacking that, uh, which, again, is really just an echo of the earlier section we talked about concerning justification and, and love and fulfilling of the law, just applied now in the context of confession and absolution. We continue to the rest of our greeting from Melanchthon. Uh, We are in paragraph 17. We'll go to the end on page 74 of the reader's edition. It is undeniable that many topics of Christian doctrine, whose place in the church is most important, have been brought to view and explained by our theologians. We are not inclined to repeat here under what sort of opinions and how dangerously these topics used to lay buried in the writings of the monks, canonists, and sophistic theologians. We have the public testimony of many good men who give thanks to God for this great blessing. Our confession teaches many necessary things better than any of our adversaries' books. We will commend our cause to Christ, who will someday judge these controversies. We beg him to look upon the afflicted and scattered churches and bring to them back godly and continuous harmony. How does Melanchthon end our time here? And what was his, well, I mean, he speaks almost uh, um, 
he's really speaking to the readers in a, not a pastoral way. He's not a pastor, but definitely in a spiritual care manner. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, you said he's speaking to the readers. And I think that it's itself is important to remember because our context was Charles V called this diet at Augsburg. The Lutherans presented the Augsburg confession. The Roman theologians responded with the confutation. And Charles told the Lutherans, okay, you need to just sign off and agree to it. You can't even read it. And the Lutherans said, well, we happen to make our own copy by taking notes and we did read it and we disagree with it on the basis of scripture. And here's why. But Charles said, you have until April 15th, 1531 to say that you agree to it. So rather than doing that, they actually publish, that is to say, publish for all the world to read the apology of the Augsburg Confession. And so when Melanchthon here is talking about the readers, he's really talking about the people of Germany who will now be receiving copies of this. Um, and it's effectively the answer to Charles V, who said, you need to sign off on the computation. And instead of doing that, the way they met their deadline was by publishing why they're not signing off and giving it to all of the parishioners uh, throughout, throughout these uh, German Lutheran churches. And so we're back to, again, trying to care for the souls of people. That is not just an academic debate, although Melanchthon is the best of the academicians. It's not just a political discussion, although there certainly are meetings held politically. But really where the rubber hits the road is the question of whether a conscience that has been stricken by this knowledge of sin and guilt before God can be consoled by that simple message that in Christ we have full and free forgiveness. And so he's saying we commend our cause to that same Christ who has forgiven us. And ultimately Christ will judge these controversies. That is to say Charles V is not the ultimate decision maker. As important as his earthly office is, and as much as we hope he will fulfill his earthly office the way God intends, nonetheless, we really appeal to Christ himself who has given us his word and his promises for our consolation. Dr. McPherson, as we come to about a minute and a half left in our time, how would you, uh, I guess we say, summarize his greeting and encourage our listeners as we begin our study of the Apology? Sure, I think I'll take us back to paragraph 16 where Melanchthon writes, disagreement does not delight us, neither are we indifferent to our danger. He's not trying to pick a fight if he doesn't have to. He's trying to be moderate. He's trying to concede what he can. Disagreement does not delight us. But he also writes, neither are we indifferent to our danger. The disagreements we have here are so fundamental and so momentous that we cannot remain silent but rather we must speak on the basis of God's word so that people will see their Savior, Jesus Christ, for all that he is. Dr. Ryan McPherson of Luther Classical College in Casper, Wyoming, thank you for being our guest. And thank you so much for having me. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.